Years ago, I was reading to a book on prayer, and the author made this comment. He said, there's nothing that the flesh resists more than prayer. Because the flesh is always crying out in pride, I can do this, I can fix this, I can figure this out. And prayer is an open acknowledgement and declaration that all of those things are not true, that we are needy people dependent on God. But because we know that's true, that our flesh just resists prayer and that dependence on God, uh, we decided to carve out a week last year called Prayer Week. And so we taught on prayer and kind of bookends. We had a series of 6.30 a.m. prayer gatherings, we had a Wednesday night prayer gathering. And so we're doing that again this year just to remind ourselves about the priority and the power found in prayer. Uh, comedian Emo Phillips once said this related to prayer. He said, every night I prayed for God to send me a new bike. Then I remembered God didn't work that way. He said, so I stole one, and then I prayed for God to forgive me because I know he does answer that prayer. I'm not exactly sure that's the pattern that we should be following in prayer, even though I think patterns are helpful in guiding us in our prayer lives. If you've been coming to Liberty Heights Church for any length of time, you know one of the things we work hard at is a high view of the Word of God. We value deeply the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. But the other thing we also work hard at is making it practical, taking all these authoritative and sufficient truths and saying, hey, this is what it looks like to actually live out of these truths. Here's how these truths make a difference in the real life that you're living. And so we work very hard at that. And so the good news is this morning, we're going to look at one of the most practical passages in the entire Bible as it relates to prayer. And so let me invite you to take your phones, your Bibles, your tablets, whatever you're using, and turn with me to the book of James. We're going to get James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, with a message titled, Back to the Basics. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, we're reminded of some of the most fundamental truths regarding prayer that we should never, ever graduate from. And uh, for most Christians, and my guess is this true of you, there's probably not an area of the Christian life that you don't feel like a bigger failure in than your prayer life. It seems like we never make the progress we hope. It seems like our hearts don't hunger for prayer like they should. It seems like prayer is too often the last resort instead of the first resort. It seems like our mind wanders in long uh, sessions of prayer. And so these are things that can be incredibly uh, discouraging if we're not careful. But here's the good news is this, is we're going to look at some very practical, basic truths. And, and they're so practical and basic. Here's my guess. You're probably not going to hear any of these and go, oh, I've, I've never heard that. Uh, this may surprise you, uh, but many pastors don't like preaching on prayer. And here's why. It's not because we don't believe in prayer. It's not because we don't think prayer is foundational. We believe, obviously, all of those things. It's, here's the struggle if you're a pastor. What are you going to say that hasn't been said on prayer? What are you going to teach that hasn't been taught on prayer? What are you going to speak about that someone hasn't written about already on prayer? And so the, the good news about that is this. Most of the growth that will take place in your prayer life is not finding out some previously undiscovered hidden teaching on prayer. It's more consistently applying the truths you already know to be true as it relates to prayer. So that's why we're just going to review some basic things. These are things that by knowing them, you won't grow in your prayer life. But if you more consistently apply them and do them, you will experience growth in your prayer life. So it's super practical, which encourages me. When I was in seminary, uh, the class that I hated the most uh, was a class on existential philosophy. And if you're wondering, I don't even know what that is, that's how I felt the whole semester, right? 
And philosophy leads itself to neat discussions and neat debates. But here's the reality. In philosophy, many times they're discussing questions that no one is actually asking in the real life that they're living. And so if you're like me and you like practical, street level, this is, this is what I need. This is not some existential, philosophical kind of thing. You're in luck today because when we get to prayer, in James chapter 4, it could not be more clear. It could not be more practical. And if you apply these things, you will grow in your prayer life, all right? So James chapter four, we'll look at verse one, uh, down through verse 10 this morning. James chapter four, verse one says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Now what our flesh says, it's because all these people around me don't know what they're doing, right? That's not what he says. He said, do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war within your members? And so the source of conflict is not what's going on around me, it's what's going on inside of me. And then he goes on to say, uh, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Verse six says, but he gives more grace. Sanctifying grace, empowering grace, what he's describing there. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Write that down. It's a good verse for your Christmas cards next year. Amen. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of our Lord and he will lift you up. And so what we find here, again, in James chapter 4, is not some philosophical teachings on prayer. It's not some mystical uh, thing on prayer. It's not some hidden secrets on prayer that no one's ever discovered. These are basic principles for prevailing prayer. And if you do these things, you will grow uh, in your prayer life if you, in fact, apply them. And so uh, what I want you to see in this passage is uh, some truths out of James chapter 4, super practical uh, this morning. And so the first one I want you to understand is simply this, is that unasked prayers cannot be answered. Now, I, I did not learn that from my philosophy professor, all right? Like, that's so basic that, you know, it's even worth uh, listing out there and drawing uh, attention to that. Uh, the reality is that that's exactly what James says here from the get-go. He says, one of the reasons you don't, you don't uh, have what you need is because you fail to ask. He gives a picture of a description of a man who's struggling to get what he wants, according to verse 4, so much to the fact that he's willing to go to war with the people around him and do whatever it takes to obtain what he wants. And then he says, and all along, despite all that warring, all that angst, all that conflict that's going on to get what you want, you never fail to go before God and ask him to meet your needs, according to verse 2. And so that's exactly what he's describing. Look at verse 2 again. What's he say? You lust and do not have you murder and covet and can't obtain, you're willing to do whatever you have to do to get what you want, yet you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. I wonder how much truth there is in this parable. Mr. Jones died and went to heaven, and St. Peter showed him around. They toured all the impressive building and grounds of that holy city. But off in the distance, there was a dark warehouse it didn't look like all the other buildings. And so pointing to that warehouse, Mr. Jones asked Peter, he said, Peter, what is that building? 
And Peter said, don't worry about that, let's move on. There's so many beautiful things to see in heaven. And so they went around and toured around and he showed him all the glory of heaven. But he couldn't escape what was in that warehouse. So he said, Peter, he said, I have to know, what's in that building? And he was so insistent that finally Peter took him over and opened the door. And from floor to ceiling, crammed this building were large boxes, each with a name in alphabetical order. Mr. Jones did what every resident of heaven had done before him as well. He immediately went to the J's and wanted to see, is there a name, a box with my name on it? He found a box and it had his name on it. And he looked at Peter for his permission to open the box, and Peter nodded his head, knowing exactly what was going to happen once he opened the box. And Mr. Jones excitedly tore off the ribbon and ripped open the box, and immediately disappointment washed over Mr. Jones's face. And Peter had seen this countless times before because in the box was the record of every single thing that God had been willing to do for Mr. Jones and through Mr. Jones, but Mr. Jones had never asked. I wonder how much truth that is in our own lives in that parable, that many times God wants to do more things through us and in us than we can even imagine, but the reality is this, the reason we do not have is simply, according to verse two, is we do not ask. Now, under our theology, there's a temptation to say, well, listen, God's sovereign, and so whatever God wants to happen is going to happen. Whatever God thinks should happen, should happen. And so the reality is, why spend all this time, energy, and passion asking God in prayer if, in fact, God is sovereign and whatever God wants to bring to pass is going to pass? Why spend all this time travailing in prayer? So here's something I want you to understand. If you're listening, say amen. God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to respond to believing prayer. Now, I can't figure out all the mystery between my free will and God's sovereignty. People have been debating that for literally hundreds of years. But what we do know from Scripture is that God in his sovereignty chooses to respond to believing prayer. Uh, pastor and author Alistair Begg said it this way. He said, God has required prayer as a necessary wheel in the machinery of his providence. He commits to his people the responsibility of moving this wheel forward in prayer. And so we cannot just excuse it and say, well, God's sovereign, God's going to do what he's want to do, so don't get all stirred up about prayer, because it clearly says in verse 2, here's a man who wants all kinds of things and does not have what he wants for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons, according to verse 2, is he does not ask, and so unasked prayers cannot be answered. Now, we look at this in James chapter 4, and we think, what a fool. What man would go to such lengths to wage war and murder and strife and all these things to get what he wants and all along one of the reasons he does not have it is because he does not ask what a fool can I tell you I've met another person who is such a fool as well and I shave him every morning in the mirror I've been that fool I've carried things around instead of laying them at the Lord's feet in prayer. I've tried to fix it. I've tried to figure it out. I've tried to obsess over it. You ever think this? If I just worry about it a little longer, it'll fix itself. You ever feel that way? We may not agree with that, but we sure behave that way. All along, not realizing, hey, God says, just lay that at my feet. The reason you don't have what you need is because you fail to ask. So let me ask you a question this morning. What burden have you been carrying around far too long? instead of laying it at the Lord's feet in prayer? What situation, relationship have you been trying to fix instead of putting it at the Lord's feet in prayer? What's something you've been trying to figure out left to your own resources, intellect, and experience and education instead of just laying it at the Lord's feet in prayer and saying, Lord, I cannot figure this out, I cannot fix this, and I need to lay this at your feet. He says, hey, you don't have because you don't ask. 
Several years ago, I was having lunch with a man for our, from our church, and uh, he began to talk about one of his children who was away from the Lord, and I've had that conversation with people a time or, or 200, and usually somewhere in that conversation, they begin to describe one of their children's away from the Lord, and usually that conversation is filled with tears, or it's filled with sometimes with false guilt, at the very least, it's filled with heartache. But as he wrapped up the story about this child who was away from the Lord, he just leaned back in the booth, we were there, and a smile came across his face. And here's what he said, I'll never forget this. He said, but you know what? He said, I gave that burden to the Lord a long time ago because I just found it was too heavy for me to carry and only God can change their hearts and no one loves my child more than the Lord does. So I just let him carry that because I'm tired. I thought, wow, what incredible truth. You hear what he's saying? He said, hey, for this child I've travailed for in prayer, what I've wanted is peace. And God said, hey, all along, you don't have that because you've not been asking for it. And finally, at the place you ask and say, Lord, I cannot do this anymore. I need you to carry this burden and lay it at my feet. Only then do you have what you need because you finally ask. Now, here's the reality. There's nothing that fuels your prayer life more than answered prayer. You start to see God move in tangible, obvious ways, and it motivates you to pray even more. But far too often, we're just too proud to admit we cannot fix this and we cannot figure it out. And so we don't have. Why? Because we don't ask, because we're too proud to ask. Little boy was trying to move a huge stone, and his father was uh, amused, and he watched him, and his father said to him, he said, son, he said, are you using all your strength? And the little boy, clearly frustrated the question, said, of course I am, dad. I'm using all the strength I can. Very aggravated his dad. And his dad said, no, you're not, son. He said, you're not using all your strength because you've yet to ask me for any help. I wonder if God feels that way sometimes. All the resources of heaven are available to us. All the, everything that's all the promises of God are yes in him according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. But yet we do not have. Why? Because we do not ask. And so many times unasked prayers end up being unanswered prayers simply not because God's unwilling and certainly not because God doesn't have the resources to move on our behalf but because we fail to ask. And so the first thing we see here in verse 2 is unanswered or unasked prayers end up being unanswered prayers. So, so here's, a, here's a key question I want to ask. So we know that's true. That's clear in the Bible. We don't have to wrestle with that truth. That's clear, what he says in verse 2. But what about the times that you are asking? What about the times you are travailing in prayer and God doesn't seem to be responding? What about the times you're offering up requests and they seem to be bouncing off the ceiling? Anybody in the room this morning ever have something you've prayed for and it seems like God is not listening? Anybody have that kind of experience? Yeah, most of us in the room. And if you say, I've never had that experience, let me just share this with you as an encouraging word. Nobody likes you, all right? Because we've all struggled, right? We've all had times where like, I'm praying, and God sure doesn't seem to be answering. And so the reality is simply this. We do trust God's goodness and his sovereignty, so sometimes because he's good and faithful and just and sovereign, we just realize, say, whatever it is I'm praying for, God and his sovereignty has determined it's not best for me to grant that request. But other times, what we learn in James chapter 4 is other times we've encountered some prayer pitfalls. There's some things listed here in this passage that he says, hey, if you're guilty of these things, it's going to hinder the effectiveness of your prayer life. And so I just want to walk us through uh, some of these prayer pitfalls. So if you're asking, again, if you don't ask, he can't answer, right? Verse two, but what about when you are asking and it seems as if he's not answering well, you may be guilty of one of these prayer pitfalls. And so he lists out three of them we're looking at in the passage this morning. So prayer pitfall number one is simply this, it's wrong motives. It's wrong motives. 
Look again at verse three, chapter four, verse three. What's he say? He says, you ask and do not receive. So in verse two, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so I cannot answer a prayer that's not been offered. But then he says in verse three, and when you do ask, he says, uh, you ask amiss. And you may spend it on your pleasures. The word amiss there in the original language, it means improperly, badly, or incorrectly. And so what he's describing here is a person who's motivated in their prayer life by selfish desires. This is a person who rarely prays that that God's uh, gospel would advance, but that their life would advance. This is a person who rarely prays, uh, Lord, that your kingdom would come, but instead, I need my kingdom to come. And this is a person who's constantly motivated by worldly desires. Now, here's the reality. How do I know that? Am I just being critical, saying, oh, they're, they're motivated by the wrong desire, their worldliness? No, no, I know that because that's exactly what the text says. Look at verse four and five, what's he say? Verse three says, your motive is totally wrong. And then in verse four and five, he says, and here is your motive. What's he say in verse four? Adulterers and adulteresses. Apparently, he wasn't seeker sensitive. He didn't know you shouldn't say that. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or in other words, it puts you at odds with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, here's been my experience. If you've been in church for any length of time, uh, just just a little survey here this morning. If you've ever heard a sermon, lesson, group discussion, whatever, on worldliness and the dangers of worldliness and avoiding worldliness, would you just raise your hand? If you ever heard anybody preach against worldliness, yeah, most of you, some of you are wincing right now. I'm assuming some of those were angry sermons, right? I've sat under some of those. I've heard more than one sermon say, you know, come out from the world and be separate. I've heard all of that thing. Here's the problem with that. We don't even often know what we're talking about. Most of the time when the church talks about worldliness, it talks about external appearances and habits. You know, uh, when we talk about worldliness, uh, there's things like, you know, uh, worldliness would be um, uh, things that we don't do, like we don't go to movies, we don't do this, or those kind of things. But here's the reality. When the Bible here in verse 4 talks about the world, it's not talking about externals. It's the worldliness is an ungodly system that is set against Jesus Christ. Worldliness is valuing things that have no value in the economy of God. Let me give you some examples. I think it'll be helpful. Uh, Here's some examples. The world values fame. We should value humility. The world values exploiting your strengths. Christians should value meekness. The world values sexual expression and freedom. We should value purity. The world values being served. We should value serving. The world values accumulating. Followers of Christ should value giving. The world values overworking. We should value Sabbath rest. The world values power. We should value weakness. Do you get the idea? And so worldliness is being attracted to values that have no value in the economy of God. As a matter of fact, they work directly opposite to what God values. And so the problem is in our church is we don't focus on all these external things. You know, um, should, should we... Should we play cards? I can't tell how many times I've had people say, you know, do you think dancing is wrong? And I say the same thing every time with a straight face. I think bad dancing is sinful, but other than that, I think it's okay, right? I had a guy tell me one time that, uh, you know, they, they didn't go to movies or, or, or uh, no, that was, he, he's like, I say, hey, let's go to Applebee's. He's like, well, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't go to Applebee's because I just want to be separate from the world. I said, you tell me that Applebee's is wicked because if you are, get thee behind me, Satan, amen? Listen, those riblet baskets, Gift of God. That's what manna means in the original language. Riblets. Write that down. And he said, no, no, no. He said, they serve alcohol at Applebee's. And I want to be separate from the world. And I said, oh, so I, I appreciate your motive. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, where do you get your groceries from? Kroger? 
I said, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting, right? You see, you see the disconnect there? You know, I, have a convert, I had a guy tell me one time, he said, well, we encourage you know, women in our church not to wear makeup. And I said, why is it? He said, well, the you know, cosmopolitan, uh, the Greek word, the original is the word cosmos, and the word cosmos in the original language means world. And so we think being a cosmopolitan woman, dressing up, makeup, all that stuff, is a worldly thing. He said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, listen, here's what I tell my church. Listen, uh, if the barn needs painting, paint the barn. Amen? I think that's what, that's, that, you're welcome. That's an encouraging word, is it not? That's how I feel about it. You know, like dress codes, like, you know, these are godly, these are not. But what do we say all the time? What's our dress code here? When it comes to clothes here, we're for them. I think you should wear them to church, not to be a distraction, right? But worldliness often is reduced to all those external kinds of things, movies and cards and, you know, where we eat at restaurants and makeup and all those things. But here's the reality. Worldliness, according to the word of God, is loving the things that have no value in the economy of God. And apparently this is a person who says, hey, I've become so enamored with things and I value things so deeply that these aren't things that God values that it's actually spilling over into my prayer life and so the things that I'm praying for are things that God doesn't even value. Now, let me just share a couple things. One, uh, I've been teaching the Bible for 20 years. I've got undergraduate and graduate degrees in theology and, and I taught verse by verse through the book of James, I don't know, eight or nine years ago here, right after I first got here. I noticed something in studying this passage this week that I've never seen in 20 years of studying the Bible. Do you realize this? In chapter four, verse three, this is a person who's deceived by their motives. Do you know how I know that? No person who truly professes to know Jesus Christ is going before God over and over in prayer, openly, openly acknowledging they're completely wrong in what they're praying for, right? No one who professes to know Christ is going before the throne of a holy God and saying, God, you don't value any of these things but I still want you to grant these requests. God, these things are worldly, but I want you to move on my behalf. No one is doing that who professes to know Christ, so this is a person who is deceived in their motives. They have no idea that worldliness has crept into their life and has spilled over into their prayers. Now, that's a dangerous place to be. And so how do we know if that's, we're guilty of that same thing? It's really simple. Ask yourself an honest question. What drives you in life? Is it the expansion of your kingdom or his? Is it the advancement of your agenda or his? Where do you funnel your resources of time and, and money? What captures your affections as evidence that it causes you anxiety when it feels threatened? That's what drives you in life. Now, I'm going to say something that is not going to be popular. I don't want to be harsh, but I do think it needs to be addressed. I think what's driving far too many su- suburban families is the success of their children. And it is, can be athletics, it can be academics, extracurriculars, and for some it's making sure their kid's in with the right crowd, the in crowd, and all those kinds of things. For some poor, uh, poor kids, it's for all the above. Now, you say, what's the alternative? Do you want your kids to be failures? No, I don't want my kids to be successful. I want my kids to be faithful. That's the goal of Christian parenting. It's to raise a kid that whatever they do, whatever they excel, however much money they make, whatever their careers, whoever they know, who they don't know, they love Jesus Christ deeply. And that's why I should leverage all my resources. And if, in fact, that's not what I'm leveraging my resource as a parent, guess what? I've begun to value some things that the world values me, like success, that's directly opposed to what God values, which is faithfulness. And you are naive if you don't think that won't creep over into your prayer life. And so what's he say? He says, hey, one of the reasons you, you, don't, you don't have is because you don't ask, verse two, and when you do ask, you, you're, it's because you're valuing things that I don't even value. 
And so I'm not answering those things is what God is saying here. And so you may be thinking that and we'll go, well, who in the world would, would pray with those kind of motives, right? Well, apparently enough people that God found it wise to record it in James chapter 4, verse 3, for the counsel of all of us who'd be listening today. Do you know who in the world would be susceptible to praying with the wrong motive? Right here. Right here. God, grow my ministry not for your glory but for mine. God, uh, advance my kingdom, not your kingdom. God, make my kids successful, not because it's gonna help them be more faithful, because it makes me look better as a parent. Listen, all those things creep into our prayer lives, and this is a person who's deceived by their motives. Now, if you're listening to that and you think, well, I would never, I would never do that in prayer. Well, then you've hit prayer pitfall number three, which is pride. Third thing we see in this text is that pride puts distance between us and God. I'm only going to spend a minute here because it's pretty self-explanatory, but I want you to see how powerful pride is and what a detriment it is to your prayer life. Look at verse 6. What's he say? But he gives more grace. Again, this is not saving grace. This is empowering grace, sanctifying grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. Now, you know what prayer is? Prayer is me moving towards God in dependence. You know what pride says? I'm totally independent. I don't need your resources, God. And when I have that posture that I'm not dependent on God, I'm not helpless, I'm not weak, then what happens is I have a posture, not of humility, but of pride, and it doesn't mean that, here's what it clearly says in the text, it means that God is actively resisting me when I take that posture. Prayer is me moving towards him. Pride causes God to push me away. Now, I'm not a scholar, but here's what I know. If I want God to respond to my prayers, him pushing me away, Hurts that, am I right? That's what it says. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Most of the prayer warriors I've known in my life, I'm just being honest, in 20 years of ministry, most of the prayer warriors I've known in my life have been women. You know why? As a general of thumb, men struggle with pride a little more. Men don't like to be wrong. Men don't like to go to the doctor when they should go to the doctor. Men don't like to ask for directions. Am I right? If I'm right, ladies, say amen. That's right. And I'm, listen, I'm guilty as well. I've told you a story before. Tosh and I first got married. Uh, we were uh, driving to a friend of mine. My best friend was getting married uh, in Kentucky. That's an important part of this little story, right? Listen to that. He was getting married in Kentucky. And Tosh and I were in the car. We're driving. Now, at some point in time, she recalls we had gotten to an argument about something. And I don't recall that, so I, I've totally forgotten however it was that Tosh sinned against me that day. I've chosen to forgive. I don't even remember that, right? And so we're not talking in the car, and we're driving, and she's just flipping through a magazine. And as we're driving to my friend's wedding in Kentucky, without even looking up, she's flipping through the pages. We haven't spoken a word in the 15 minutes we've been in the car, and she casually says, with all the wisdom of an 18-year-old, that's how old she was, she said this. She said, was that the Dayton Mall? Yeah. You ever have that point in an argument where you know you're wrong? You got two choices, just humbly admit, I'm so sorry, I've been so stupid. Or you just press the pedal down even harder, right? I chose the second option. Without missing a beat, I told her, I said, yes, we are. I know a shortcut through Kentucky. Don't ask me any more questions. Or through Michigan to Kentucky, right? That's, I just, I didn't want to admit I was wrong. Listen, you know what? Guys, that's a struggle of ours. And guess what? If we're going to lead our home spiritually, you cannot be the person driving through Michigan to get to Kentucky and expect God to respond to your lack of humility. So what's he say here? 
God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And so how do you pray yourself out of pride? If prayer is me moving towards God and pride causes God to push me away, according to verse six, how do you pray yourself out of pride? We don't have to wonder. The text tells us, look at verse seven. He says, therefore, now anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, you ask a real simple question. What's it there for? And he said, so therefore, so because all these things are true, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, here's the contrast. Therefore, this is what you should do if you don't want God to resist you. What's he say in verse seven? Therefore, submit to God. You see, a prideful person says, Lord, I got it figured out. A prideful person says, my kingdom needs to expand and my agenda is all that matters. But a humble person says, Lord, not my will, but your, uh, yours. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. And Lord, whatever you want to do, I just submit myself to that this, this morning as an act of humility. And when I posture myself that way, guess what? God responds. Here's something that is countercultural, but it's true on the Bible. Did you know this? God is attracted to weakness. We live in a culture that does everything we can to promote strength and, and, and uh, put an image of strength out there, to market our strengths, you know, get out there. Listen, here's the reality God is attracted to weakness. And God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so prayer is me moving towards God. God begins to respond to my weakness and humility. So we say, Lord, I submit myself as an act of humility. I don't have it figured out. I don't have the resources I need. Lord, I just submit myself to whatever it is you want to do in me and through me. And God moves on that behalf. Pride puts distance between us and God. And prayer is simply submitting ourselves to the will of God. Here's the third and last prayer pitfall I want to share with you. The last prayer pitfall that we can be guilty of. We can certainly be guilty of not asking. We can certainly be guilty of asking with wrong motives. We can be guilty of pride creeping into our lives. God resisting us. But here's the last one. The last prayer pitfall is this. It's a lack of soberness. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, I've got some things to work on in my prayer life, but trying to pray while drunk is not one of them, right? Like, like I get drunk and then try and pray. What, what do you mean by soberness? Well, seriousness, soberness is what he's describing here. You say, where do you see that? I see that in verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. What's he say? He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Like, I, I like that part, right? Like, I'm encouraged by that. But then the, what's he say? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So here's the first area that we see about the soberness required to be prevailing in prayer. The first thing is this. You cannot be casual about sin and be serious about prayer. That's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, if you want to draw near to God and, and in response, God draws near to you, then, then cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Don't arrogantly think you can come before the throne of a holy God with open, habitual, unrepentant sin and then sit back and wonder, why is it God doesn't seem to be responding and moving on behalf of my prayers? What he's saying in verse 8 is you cannot be casual about sin and be serious about prayer. Now, once you're in Christ, when, when you're, uh, your relationship can never be severed, but your fellowship can be strained. Bible says in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, in other words, I know it's there, I see it, I'm not that concerned about it. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It doesn't mean that God doesn't audibly hear. God hears and sees everything. What he's saying is, God will not bend his ear or move on behalf of my request if that's the pattern of my life. That's what he's saying in verse 8. 
He said, you want to draw near to God? You want God to draw near to you in response? Then cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. You cannot be casual about sin and be serious about prayer is what verse 8 is saying. Early on in the book of James, he says this, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What's a double-minded man? It's a man who says he loves Jesus out of this side of his mouth, but then his life shows that he does not. It's a person who says, I'm I'm for Jesus, and then pursues a life that's indirect. That's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways, is what James says earlier. But listen to what James says at the end of that verse. Let not that man think he shall receive anything from the Lord. You know what goes under the banner of anything? Answered prayer. And so guess what? If I'm casual, saying I love Jesus, but then my life is filled with sinful patterns, he says, let not that that man receive anything because he's double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. So verse 8 says, you cannot be casual about sin and serious about prayer. There's a lack of soberness, if that's true. God doesn't respond to that. But then also, the second thing we see in verse 8 and 9 is this, regarding a lack of soberness, is this. Light burdens do not translate to heavy prayer. Light burdens do not translate to heavy prayer, and God moves on behalf of heavy prayer from us. One of the reasons our prayers aren't answered is we're just offering half-hearted, frivolous, easily uttered, soon forgotten, routine, saying the same thing over and over, kind of prayers rattle off, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, or God bless the meat we're about to eat, those kinds of things, but there's never any heaviness in our prayer. There's never anything we're deeply burdened about. There's never a time, what one writer said, where we get a hold of God with both hands. That's exactly what he's describing there. Look at verse 9. What's he say? Chapter 4, verse 9, he says, lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see what he's saying there? He said there should be some times in your life where you're so deeply burdened that when you're drawing close to the Lord, it's, with a, it's not frivolous, it's not casual, it's a heavy burden you've been walking with that translates to pleading with God over and over and over. It's one of the reasons for fasting. You know what fasting indicates to heaven? We're serious. Fasting is saying, hey, I'm going without something that I have to have food in order to get something that I need even more, which is God's presence. And so he said God responds to that type of persistent, travailing type of prayer that we offer up. James chapter 5, verse 16, just one chapter over, says this. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That word fervent in the original language, it literally means stretched out like an athlete who's stretching for the goal. He's saying you should come before the Lord. If you want the kind of prayer that avails much that God responds to, you should approach God with requests where you're straining, stretched out for the goal and saying, Lord, you have to answer this. Lord, I'm not going to give up. Lord, I'm going to keep prevailing and persisting in prayer no matter what the cost. That's the kind of prayer that God responds to. And so light burdens don't translate to heavy prayer and God responds to earnest, fervent prayer according to verse nine. Lament, mourn, and weep. I read something this week while I was studying that was a question asked out of verse 9, and I just, I just want to be transparent. Um, I was deeply convicted by what I read, deeply convicted. And the writer asked this in light of verse 9. Here's what he asked. He said this. He said, when is the last time you shed a tear in prayer? And I just, I'm honest before God, I was deeply, deeply convicted by that. But what does it say here? He said, there should be times where we lament, we mourn, and we weep and say, Lord, I'm grabbing a hold of you with both hands. This is so, with both hands, this is so heavy to me. 
that we pray fervently, and the Bible says that type of prayer, God responds to, and it avails much. Light burdens don't translate to heavy prayer. That's what verse 9 is teaching. Now, if you're like me, the temptation is to walk out of here and say, man, I didn't feel like a failure in prayer when I came in, but I sure do now. Amen. Thanks for that good word, preacher. Right? Just my personality is to go through that list of all those prayer pitfalls, about guilty, 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 guilty. Like you walk out and you're like, you know, I thought I was saved when I came in. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. Right? It's just to get defeated. But listen, let me just remind you. Yes, we want to be mindful of all these prayer pitfalls because we want to prevail in prayer. Yes, we want to be faithful to ask. Ask with the right motives. Don't let pride keep it. All these things, if you apply them, you'll grow in your prayer life. But I don't want you to leave here discouraged. Let me, let me just close with a quote. It's an encouraging reminder from Max Lucado that I read this week to encourage you to keep asking even when it feels like he's not answering. Here's what he said. He said, our prayers may be awkward and our attempts may be feeble. Listen to this, this is gold. He said, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference, so just keep asking. The power of prayer is not in the one who offers it, it's in the one who hears it, So even when he doesn't feel like he's answering, just keep asking because our prayers make a difference. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to first ask this. Have you ever prayed the most important prayer you'll ever pray, which is to pray and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins? Have you come before a holy God in prayer and confessed your sins and acknowledged that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins and that he alone can forgive your sins? And have you prayed and cast yourself on the mercy of God for salvation? And so the most important prayer you'll ever pray is this, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of your mercy and need of forgiveness. Save me from my sins. Have you prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's the most important prayer you ever pray. So if the answer is no or I'm not sure, listen, here's the good news this morning. You can receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you'll pray and cry out to God and say, Lord, I need Jesus to forgive me my sins, he responds to that prayer every single time. That's a prayer that always gets answered. But for those of you who do know Jesus Christ, I just want to ask you a question this morning. How many in the room are carrying a burden that's far too heavy and you've been carrying it for far too long and you're tired and discouraged and you've yet to place that at the Lord's feet in prayer. That you would come to the place this morning of weakness and humility and say, Lord, I can't fix it and I can't figure it out. I'm totally dependent on you. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, listen, then you're finally at a place that you can encounter Jesus in prayer. He only responds to our dependence. God is attracted to weakness. And so if that's you here this morning, honest before God, you said, that, that, that's me, I, I cannot carry it any longer. I can't change them. I can't fix this. I can't figure it out. Pridefully, I thought I could. I can't. I'm tired. I want to put this at the Lord's feet and put it in his hands in prayer. I'm dependent on him. How many of you honest before God would just raise your hand and say, hey, that's me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Anybody? Yeah, lots of you. 
lots of you. Let me just pray for you as a way to encourage you this morning. God, we live in a world that despises weakness. And because that's true, we do everything we can to avoid it. But God, we also know the truth is that you are attracted to weakness. And prayer is an expression of that. It's an open acknowledgement of our humble dependence on you for everything. And so, Lord, for those in the room this morning who raised their hand and said, I'm, I'm carrying a burden that's too heavy for me. For those in the room who've been deceived by the allure of strength, God, I pray this morning that they would openly acknowledge your weakness because it's in your weakness, or in our weakness, we see your strength, Lord. And they would take that burden, whatever it is they're carrying, and they would place it at your feet in prayer. And Lord, they would just release that into your good, faithful, and sovereign hands. And God, I pray this week, every time they start to worry about that, every time anxiety creeps in, God, let that worry be a prompter to remind them you're not carrying that anymore. The Lord is. And so, Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful that you meet us at our place of need. We're grateful that it's in our humility and in our weakness we can finally encounter Jesus in all that he offers us. And so, Lord, I pray this week we would walk out of here encouraged by the truths we've heard. I pray that we would be guarded against the things we've talked about. But, God, I pray that we would also remember that ultimately the hope of our prayer is not in us. It's in Jesus. And so, Lord, encourage this week, grow us this week, let us live in the freedom of these truths this week, and may we celebrate all your goodness as we do those things this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name because we can. Amen.